0: Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context.
1: Well, we are thrilled to have on the broadcast today Dr. David Baker. Dr. Baker is a prolific, and that's not a... um... Unnecessary adjective, that's an important adjective A prolific scholar and editor His works include Genesis 37-50 to 50, A handbook on the Hebrew text at Baylor Press Also the book of Isaiah, a commentary by Zondervan Joel Obadiah Malachi, also Zondervan Publications A dictionary of the Old Testament Pentateuch And edited along with T.D. Alexander with I.B. Press and many, many more I won't take the time to read, in addition to being a professor of Old Testament and Semitics at Ashland Theological Seminary, where he's been 30, how many years now, Doc? Well, I started in 86, and I can't count that high. So. <laughs> well, That's uh, 34 this year. 34 this year. He has taught in a visiting capacity in Australia, South America, and Europe. He also works extensively with Faith Life Mobile Ed and has done the courses including Introduction to the Old Testament, Poetry and Prophecy, a survey of Amos, Joel, Obadiah, Malachi, and the Theology of Genesis along with others. It's interesting, we have a long, long friendship with Faith Life and Bob Pritchard. I think I was using the Logos when it was was actually called the CD Word Project when it first started at Dallas Seminary. And Bob came and purchased it and turned it into what then became Logos. And now it's just amazing what he's done with these tools. And Dr. Baker, a.k.a. Now and David, is a faculty member on their mobile ed program. And again, we encourage you, we give a discount if you take those courses through in context. They give you a little break, and we highly encourage you to check out those offerings online. Well, thanks for joining us with that long introduction, Dr. Baker. Thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you very much. So with your scope of literature, let me stand at the 30,000-foot view and say, all right, Professor Baker, give us an overview of some of these books you've spent years studying. Give us the big picture of these prophets, minor prophets. How would you explain these in a high level to a person that is not familiar with these books?
2: Okay, well, they are speaking to specific contexts, specific needs, and Many of the needs and contexts are stretching beyond their particular time period, but we do have to remember that they are speaking to specific times and places. For example, Joel is famous for its locust swarm, where the prophet is giving support and encouragement to a nation that has just been overwhelmed by locusts which if I remember hearing the news within the last week or two in Africa, there's a swarm coming through. Yes. So it would have been speaking to that particular episode, but that kind of episode happens again and again, literally in the area. So it is applicable to a wider range of time periods, but also it's used metaphorically for armies coming in and, Israel was in the middle of major sweeps between Egypt and the Hittites and the Assyrians and the Babylonians. So this is something, again, as an example of something that is specifically directed, but it's also more universally applicable uh, because most of us have our own metaphorical or literal focus swarms as well. So that's how I see these prophets, the minor prophets, as well as the major prophets, looking at their own time, but Very applicable to other times in history and life of God's people of the Old Testament and the New Testament.
1: Talk to us a little bit about the life of the prophet because as I've been teaching through each book of the Bible one Sunday at a time, I'm struck with the reticence of prophets. Save perhaps Isaiah after he is forgiven, we might say, when the coal touches his mouth. Save him. Do we have a eager beaver, I'm ready to go prophet. They all seem to be reluctant. Jonah, of course, resistant, disobedient. Expand on that if you would. Jeremiah, too, arguing against
2: being prophets. Well, I think they might have also been aware during the course of the development of Old Testament history what happened to prophets. The writer of Hebrews talks about some of them being killed. Mm -hmm. In fact, when you speak truth to power, You have the power of God behind you, but the secular power, if you like, has control over your head, whether it remains on your body or not. So it can be kind of a scary proposition. Amos himself, for example, in the middle of his prophecy, a representative of the king comes up and says, stop, shut up, we can't have this. Because he's presenting the the word, if you like, of the capital K, king, which would be God, Yahweh. But the temporal king, is getting upset, and so a lot of them have the same kind of nervousness, if you like. And even if you got along well with your ruler, you don't want to bring bad news, and quite often it is bad news, at least from the king's perspective, because they were doing wrong, which is the reason why the prophet had to come and slap them on the wrist, or more strongly other places on the body, just (laughs) to
1: catch their attention. I suspect they had very few friends in this call. I mean, we know some of them had what we might call disciples, but in the main, they're they're persona non grata. Yeah,
2: I would think so. There
1: there are some that uh,
2: one was thrown into a well, and somebody came and pulled him out. Uh, They do have some friends. And sometimes the king was even their friend. Thinking, going outside of the minor prophets, you have Nathan the prophet, who at times seemed to be on good terms with David, but then when he knocks on David's door and say, you know, there are things that you're doing that are not right. So all of a sudden your friend can turn on a dime and become unfriendly. So I think they had, I should say, disciples, sometimes friends, and I would imagine they had family and friends that were with them, but when they were doing their official role of prophesying, It was a more uncomfortable position for him to be in.
1: Since you have written particularly and taught on Amos, Joel, Obadiah, and Malachi, could you give us a a 30-second synopsis of each of those books, starting with Amos? Okay, Amos,
2: I like to contrast him with Hosea, where Amos, he is in fact saying, Israel, you're worshiping the right God, but you're worshiping wrongly. So wrong worship of the right God, Well, Hosea is the opposite, where you've got the, the worship isn't being condemned, but who they are worshiping, because they were, Baal is mentioned a number of times right. in Hosea, when he's not in Amos. Joel, as we said, is offering hope to those who are suffering.
1: And if I can inject there, the day of the Lord repetition, the land repetition, and the I will repetition in Joel jumps off the page when I read it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the day of the Lord is there in
2: most of the minor prophets.
1: starts off in Amos. And
2: it's interesting, too, because you have a dual or two-sided coin picture of the day of the Lord, where the day of the Lord, if you obey the Lord, you're on the good side of the day of the Lord. It's a day of hope, of blessing if you're disobedient, then you're on the other side where it's a time of punishment. And Israel kept misunderstanding. They thought because we are Israelites, because we are Israel, because we're children of Abraham, we're on the good side. And you can see God scratching his head several times and saying, no, that's not the way it works. Even you, if you are sons of Abraham, if you disobey my covenant, that puts you on the other side. And so we see that coming through Especially Zephaniah, for example, is a very strong point of the day of the Lord runs through that book quite a bit.
1: Obadiah. 21 verses, the shortest minor prophet. Yeah. And uh, easy
2: to skip over, but it's interesting there. You see the picture of an enemy of Israel that has opposed them possibly even at the destruction, time of the destruction of Jerusalem. This would be Edom. And they think they're impregnable because they're on the east side of the Dead Sea. You've got these, if you like, mountains or high plateaus that rise up above the Dead Sea and very hard to get to. So they thought we're safe, but they forgot that the the one who is really attacking them is not the smaller armies down below, but the, the capital G general of the armies, if you like, the king of the universe who doesn't care if they're up in the rocky crags because he has control over them up there as
1: well. And the Esau and Jacob parallel, you see this through Obadiah with, um, Edom. Yeah. E- yeah.
2: yeah. Cause Esau, of course, even in Genesis, uh, I think it's 36 where we've got the genealogy of Esau. He's called Edom there. Mm-hmm. So this is picked up and this is the one, uh, that's probably known better to, uh, your listeners through Indiana Jones. Yeah. And, and <laughs> the <structure>. Nabataeans,
1: yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah. Because wasn't that the, I think it was the temple of doom, right. which is set in Petra, which is in the Edomite area. And you can see some of the scenery there is why It's hard to attack Edom because you have these narrow canyons that one or two soldiers could keep people from entering. But uh I always like to point out where there are contemporary ways that you can see these things because, unfortunately, more people watch Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom than read my commentary on Obadiah.
1: I can't imagine. I can't imagine. Uh, I'm waiting for Oprah to get in touch with me and say, we (laughs) want to do Obadiah. (laughs) Don't hold your breath. I uh, still remember my first time in Petra, and they had the Indiana Jones gift shop. And my uh, docent tour friend was telling me, he said, yeah, before this, we had, you know, a few hundred visitors. You know, now I think it's over a million a year anyway. And it's all paved now, so they would have easier access to get in there and fight. Okay, so let's take another turn then. When you think of, and this is a great segue with contemporary consumers preferring, you know, not to be uh, unkind, but, you know, entertainment, media, that's easier than studying the Bible. So how do we help them from, again, this 30,000-foot take? How do we help them gain an appreciation for how God used these prophets in the life of Israel and Judah?
2: Well, I think one of the main things is just to read through them. I have problems with programs reading through the Bible in a year because we've got to chew slowly on Scripture, as is one of the... Images that we have in scripture. But if you're in a liturgical church, you follow a lectionary, which would have you read some of these things during the course of a cycle. But if you do reading through the Bible in a year, you can do the same thing. Because I think their name has kind of an argument against them in a lot of people's eyes. Minor prophets. Why should I? I don't go to a minor league baseball game. I'd rather watch the, the major league players. But Minor is really only in size, not in importance. Some of the issues are very relevant to today. And I think that's one of the problems for today's readers is because all of a sudden, well, preachers preaching from the minor prophets could be said, you're being involved in politics. You can't speak politics from the pulpit today. And that's exactly what the prophets minor and major were doing. And I think one of our problems today, our contemporary readers go to their news stations rather than scripture. And they quite often are saying opposite kinds of things. Just get in there and read them and see what they're talking about.
1: I find and your comments interesting because in my teaching through the, what I'm calling the uh, big book cover to cover, is I'm pointing out, you know, the minor prophets are much easier and shorter to read over the major. Prophets. <laughs> so it, it's a little more unwieldy to take Isaiah or Jeremiah. If again, a person isn't, somewhat skilled in Bible study methods or doesn't have a reading program or in a Sunday school class or BSF precept, something that's helping them along besides the sermon on a Sunday morning, but be that as it may. Other insights that you have gained over 34 years of studying and teaching prophetic literature in particular and how we learn even today from these ancient patriarchs and writers of old, of antiquity?
2: Well, I think it's important just to Keep your eyes in both locations, as we were saying, that is, in the Old Testament context, what they were saying, and then also in our context. Well, in the middle, if you like, you could have the New Testament context, because a number of these passages are picked up in different ways in the New Testament. But if it only stays even in the two Testaments, it's not really relevant to us. So many of them speak on beyond to us. I was just thinking we just had Martin Luther King Day. And going back to Amos again, uh, one of his sermons was on Amos chapter 5, verses 21 through 24, about, I hate your festivals, Mm. I hate your religious feasts, but uh, 24, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So what God's saying there is, If you at loggerheads with your brother or sister, if you're hurting them, I want justice. I want an established relationship horizontally, if you like. I want that reestablished before I can have a vertical relationship with you. And Jesus picks up exactly the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, where he says, if you bring your sacrifice to the altar and you remember your neighbor has something against you, Leave your sacrifice and go make it right with your neighbor. And too often I've, well, I'm not looking just at other people, too often myself sitting at church, I look over and think maybe I should get things right with the person across the pew from me. But we think we can just come straight to God and God is there to listen to us. But he said there are things that can get in the way. Jesus doesn't specifically refer to Amos, but it's the same kind of thing. There are, I think direct applications between the minor prophets, say the new Testament and contemporary church.
1: So I took a a turn away from my earlier question of, you know, 25 word, 30 second uh, overview. What about Malachi? We both
2: been teenagers in our life and probably had teenagers. And the approach of Malachi is really different from any of the other books. And you almost sound like you've got a teenager there because God starts off very beginning with a statement, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Whatever we seem to say as parents, our kids come back to us. What do you mean? uh, (laughs) They find opposite. So I can see the people of Malachi's time. Malachi's pulling his hair out because he's acting like a parent of a teenager. But uh, covenant is so important there. He's calling on the people again to don't break covenant. Keep a relationship with God. Probably the most famous verse in Malachi is, I hate divorce. Mm. Reading that in context is really important too, because he's talking to the man, husband, if you like. supposed to remember the wife of his youth. It's not telling the... The woman maybe might be talking about the woman as well, but he's directly addressing the man, and that's especially I think relevant to me. My wife's uh, retired from a practice as a counselor. Her main areas of interest were sexual abuse and domestic violence. Mm. Too often, the church says, "You've got to go back to that abusive relationship," and I think Malachi specifically addresses that because it's, "I hate divorce," and you can read the text through the Hebrew that is covering your garment or covering yourself with violence. What he could be saying here is that by engaging in domestic abuse, sexual abuse, domestic violence, you are de facto divorcing your wife. And we too often take just the first half, I hate divorce, which is a true thing, but we also have got to take the way we treat our spouse as being important. So I picked up that bit of insight from my wife who'd come home and said, you know, my client has just been told she's got to go back in fear of her life at times. Mm -hmm. So what we've got to do is read what the prophet is saying.
1: You know, it's striking in Malachi that even in the context that that verse appears, you know, I mean, most of our Bibles have some subtitle sin in the family under that section verses 10 to 17, and rightly so, because he's talking about one father. Has not God created us? Why do we deal treacherously against his brother? And then, of course, he's going to talk about Judah and this relationship. But then by the time we get to that verse, it's almost striking to me, at least. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong. For I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. And him who covers his garment with wrong or violence, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit, that you do not deal treacherously. And then we go back to, you know, it's almost, if I was a critical liberal scholar, I'd say that verse doesn't fit almost. Well, I think it's kind of uh,
2: accumulation. It's moving up to that. He's talking about breach of covenant. Mm -hmm. And divorce is the ultimate breach of covenant. You've got a covenant relationship of husband to wife, wife to husband. They're supposed to support and encourage and love each other. And if you're engaging in sexual abuse or domestic violence in that case, it's breaking that covenant relationship apart. And the next verse, you stop there at 16 to 17, you have wearied me, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Mm. And then the teenager responds, yet how? you say, how have we reared you? <laughs> same thing going on here. But the one that gets, I just was struck today again, reading it again, chapter 3, verse 5. Mm-hmm. This again is where I think we want to close our ears in the conservative community too often. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be swift to bear witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired workers and their wages, the widow and the orphan, against those who thrust aside the alien to do not fear me. So it used to be that evangelicals would have a strong stand. I hate divorce, says God. But now in the evangelical, if you like, political sphere, we're supporting a multiple adulterer, a multiple divorcee, and we don't even talk about oppressing the hired worker, the widow, the orphan, and the alien, the refugee, if you like. So we seem to be reading selectively our scripture, uh, even though it's the same prophet speaking to the same people. Probably wandering too close to politics here. Well, no, do that. no,
1: that's <laughs> and that's a, a interesting question because you know I was trained in in try to follow a pretty strict context as critical. Context as king. Uh, person, mm-hmm. place, time it was written, what that audience heard, and then how we I even resist using the. The old line we used to say, "What's the um, the eternal principle here?" And so we principalize some of the Old Testament, and we make it into almost another form of law. And so you know, I'm always have this tension between that would fit real well here, but if I also understood the context of Malachi and what he is likely speaking to, and how much of that is a principle that we can adopt, and then say it fits in this context. I remember a friend when we lived in D.C. I was talking about public school versus private school, and he was going off on me, and he said, oh, you're one of those parents that believes you throw your kids into Babylon to get an education. Mm -hmm. And not that I uh, agreed with him, but I thought, well, that's an interesting rejoinder, because that was his perspective from his worldview, was you're a fool to put your child in public school. And then one could argue, well, my son or daughter's pretty strong in their faith, and Maybe that's salt and light for them. Maybe that's where God has them. So we we go round and round with these things. But my question to you is, you know, where are we on thin ice if we over-principalize, if that's possible, and apply – the what's the old uh, – a misapplied verse, God is greatly blessed, you know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) We, We can take it out of context and shred it and say, you know, the Lord led me to fill in the blank and sort of sanctify our conclusions. Yeah,
2: yeah, I would agree, but it was interesting for another context. I did a study of sin and injustice and unrighteousness in the minor prophets. Just looked at them and said, what is referred to as sin? And what are unacceptable actions? And I just did a statistical analysis of them, and the two... Big ones on the lips of evangelicals are sexual impropriety and abortion. Abortion, possibly one reference in Amos chapter two, verse four, where it talks about ripping open pregnant women, but sexual misconduct is only, I think, 18 or 19 verses there, and those are mainly in Hosea, where he's using it metaphorically. One in Malachi, we just read about adultery, but... Most of the sins that are mentioned, you can't tell what they're talking about. They're just general talking about sins. But the other ones where we can say what kinds of things they're looking at, they're economic. They're about 70 times out of how many of it there were 330. How you treat the poor, how you treat the, the widow and the orphan, and the alien. And so there it would seem to be, it's not just taking a verse. It's a good proportion of the verses, or minor prophets seem to be interested in economic things. Not that they're not interested in some of these other things, but the specific issues that they were working through, especially in Amos and Hosea, where Amos in particular, but this was a time when things were good for Israel. There weren't any major threats. The Assyrians, the Egyptians were kind of off on sidelines. So there was plenty for everybody there were still people that were ripping off the poor. And that seems to be a theme again and again and again going through the minor prophets.
1: The end of Malachi, give me your take on this because it does seem to segue very nicely into the Gospels, but I would love your view on this. Let me just read it for us rather short of Malachi. Behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant, And every evildoer will be chaff, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day. "'which I am preparing,' says the Lord of hosts. "'Remember the law of Moses, my servant, "'even the statutes and ordinances "'which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. "'Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet "'before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, "'and he will restore the hearts of the fathers "'to their children and the hearts of the children "'to their fathers, so that I will not come "'and smite the land with the curse.'" So help me out, how did the audience of Malachi's time hear that and how do we understand it in an applicable way today?
2: Well, I think some of the same ways that we've been talking about here that you've got, this is talking about the day of the Lord and he's more or less saying, which side of that coin are you on? Are you arrogant and evil doers? Of course, they would say no, but he refers them back in verse four, Remember the teaching of my servant Moses, the statutes and ordinances. If you remember those, then you won't be the evildoers and the arrogant. But if you forget these, then you're going to be under judgment. So he's got in those first two verses of that chapter four, you've got the arrogant, but then you've also got those who revere my name. So there's hope there for. Those who keep the Lord in mind, who keep the covenant, then there's among the same group of people, there might be those who uh, don't respond to God in the same way. But again, he's sending out, though, a call through here. It's through the prophet Elijah saying, remember, the day of the Lord is here. Respond correctly. I don't want to strike you down with a curse. He's more or less calling them back. And for us, as you say, it's segues segue to the gospel. One of the reasons why it does that is happens to be because of our Protestant canon, because Malachi is the last book. Remembering in the Jewish canon, you've got the writings, if you like, follow. So really what happens at the end of the Jewish canon, you've got Chronicles at the end. And there you see the book ends with the possibility of restoration where the king who is in exile is eating now at the table of the Babylonian ruler and then also Cyrus is allowing the people to come back and rebuild. So there it's a more positive thing. Here again in our Protestant canon, the last word being a curse is that a good thing? It's a good reminder
1: to us, I think. Let's go back to Genesis. Since you spent a lot of time in that Hebrew text as well, I think Genesis, you, know, you can't really say the most important book of the Bible, but it's in some measure, Genesis to me is critical in so many ways, form, style, function, message, you know, eternity past, all the above. So give me, uh, Prof. Dr. Baker's, some, some overviews and highlights about Genesis, what you're learning now, perhaps? But well,
2: one of the questions that I quite often get asked as a teacher of Old Testament is why I waste my time in the Old Testament, which is law, and the New Testament, which is grace. And I just point, I ask, have you ever read the, the Old Testament? Because <laughs> there's grace all the way through here. And if you read the New Testament, too, there's an awful lot of law there. So don't split up this dichotomy between the two testaments. We need the foundational understanding of what it is to be human as laid out in Genesis. He talked about the image of God, it's debated on what that means, but it's a foundational understanding of humanity, which is in complete contrast to the world in which they were living at that time, where in Mesopotamia, human beings were formed to be the servants of the gods to do the toil, the heavy work that the gods didn't want to do. So there, humanity was, if you like, at the bottom of the created order, while in Genesis, picked up to in the Psalms and other places where humanity is elevated to the top. A number of our students at the seminary where I teach, we have three different counseling programs. So a lot of them are counseling students. and. I'm teaching them, talking to them, I say, look, we need to understand what is the original ideal humanity, which is what we see briefly, if you like, before the fall. Why do we need counseling is because of chapter three. If we had just chapters one and two of Genesis, we wouldn't need counseling. We wouldn't need the rest of the Bible. Like, just
1: (laughs) stayed in the garden. All right, David, as we wind down our time together, As you look at the church and you've been around, you've been abroad, you've taught overseas, you've seen a lot of ministry in your years, what are your, say, top two or three concerns and maybe top two or three hopes for uh, the Church of Jesus Christ?
2: Well, I think the main concern is, and I'm noticing it in seminary teaching, is a lack of biblical literacy and even the lack of interest in biblical literacy, if you like. And not that seminaries or Bible colleges are the only place to gain literacy, but at least in the seminaries across the U.S. and Canada, the numbers are decreasing steadily, which is a concern. And as I say, knowledge of Scripture seems to be
1: growing less. Let me go back to your first point, because this is one of my top three, you know, just— drives me nuts. Why are people apathetic about the scripture? Why are they apathetic about the growing Christian life? Is it because we've become, you know, successful and comfortable and I mean my consumerism? Is it, you know, what, what am I missing?
2: Well, I think that's one of the main parts of it. You've got in uh, Judges chapter 2, you have a picture of what I call the sine wave theology, where things are going well, you blame yourself for that. When you sin, God like withholds his blessing. Enemies come in and attack you. And then you turn to God again, and that's where he raises the judges up. And so I think in the West, in North America, we don't really have to fight for our faith. So it becomes, it doesn't cost us anything. We are the elite, if you like. But... In other countries where confessing the fact that you're a Christian, especially if you converted to Christianity from whatever the national religion might be, you're actually putting your life on the line and you're losing your life too often. I think our belief is too cheap for us. It's the same thing we noted. I taught for four years in South Africa, and we were there just before the fall of apartheid. So when apartheid fell, then they had... General elections, and people would stand in line for 12 hours to vote because this is precious to them. They spilled blood to be able to get this. Well, in the US, the turnout, even for a presidential election, is much less than 50%. We become bored and complacent, and we don't do it anymore. And so we say to ourselves, We don't need the Bible. My job brings in what I need. I'm happy with my family. I've got Plenty to do. I don't need church or scripture. Then it becomes cheap, and I'm not praying for tribulation and opposition, but it would strengthen our Christian faith. I think if we had to face that.
1: Well, and you recall Corrie Ten Boom? Mm-hmm. Uh, that was one of her, and I use the word prophetic in quotes, but prophetic challenges that the West needed persecution in the church to clean out the apathy and the sin and, uh, you use the term easy believism or something like that. And, you know, certainly we don't want that, but it's also the, I have this, uh, theory that none of us grow apart from pain and tension. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I, you know, that's not universally true, but it seems to me most of us don't grow in our faith until there's some challenge, problem, stress. And then we Draw near to the Lord. In the corollary of that's quite frightening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's going to bring these things upon us. Mm-hmm. That said, you know, the whole Western notion of how we deal with trauma and pain and we anesthetize our issues. We reach for the spiritual ibuprofen rather than appealing to God. Okay, have I sinned here? Where have I sinned? I repent. I deserve nothing but hell. I turn to you. Will you help me? I cry out to you. I can't expect anything, but I ask. And that Posture seems to be lost. Uh, again, I don't know, but it seems to be lost on our quote, success, comfort, ease. And then, of course, as you noted, we're in a time now where while it may be easy and elite to be a Christian, if you say you're a Bible believing, fundamental, church going, you know, fill in the blank Christian, you're probably going to get more political, you know, uh, ire than you used to. Mm-hmm. And uh, depending, of course, where in the country you live, and it may be harder. So maybe that's what you know God will use going forward. I don't know. I'm, r- I'm prattling. Uh, what's your hope for his church? Well, if I could pick up one thing sure. that came to mind just as you were talking there.
2: I think we've got to remember it happens several times in prophets, but other places in scripture where the writer says, perhaps God will Listen to us and answer our prayers. Love it. That perhaps we have become so accustomed to say, It is going to, he has to, I can twist his arm and he is going to respond. I think we should be surprised every time God forgives us, every time God blesses us, not let it mm-hmm. become routine because then it loses any meaning. I think it leads toward greater joy and worship. We're surprised by joy, as C.S. Lewis stealing his title. We should be surprised every time it happens. But I think one of the hopes is there that God is a God of surprises. God, even Israel, who turned their back on him, he almost wiped out a generation, but he kept the remnant. He kept those who were faithful, and he's not going to let Israel disappear, and he won't let the church disappear. Our numbers might be shrinking because of, as we said, possibly our own apathy. But I don't think God's going to let us go. So I just sort of to keep reading the minor prophets and the major prophets and Genesis. <laughs> and the Gospels. Yeah. And oh, yeah. The yeah, there, yeah. There is a New Testament. <laughs> I forgot that. Yeah. So In, in my field, I we call it. it the appendix.
1: Oh, that, I haven't heard that. That's good. That's delicious. Yeah. Well, Dr. David Baker, David, thank you for your time. I pray your are encouraged in the ministry God's given you. Thanks for your faithfulness. And again, as I mentioned, your academic rigor and commitment all these years that so many have, you know, I, I call it imperceptible influence. We never know how God's going to use us. And uh, it'll be a delight and glory to see how he uses these uh, faithful men and women who are professors and teachers and Hebrew students and Hebrew scholars and to nurture us along in our faith. So thank you for your ministry and your work and uh, God's great blessings on you, sir. Thank you. And thank you very much for this opportunity.
0: Michael Easley in Context is fully funded by our listeners. If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? you can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is edited, mixed, and mastered by Tim Hull, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Chad Gates.